0: Malevolent Maine is a horror podcast and may contain material not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The Odd, the Strange, the Unexplained. Ghosts, cryptids, UFOs, demonic possession. Some call it the supernatural or the paranormal. Some claim there are forces outside our understanding working just beyond our ability to perceive them. Many denounce these as superstition and the product of an overactive imagination. But what if they are real? What if hiding just beneath the surface of this ordinary, mundane world is something else? Something that can't be defined by logic and reasoning? Something malevolent? We investigate the paranormal, the eerie, and the abnormal in the great state of Maine. Lots of people have a story they can't tell because it's so wild, so illogical, so unbelievable. Well, we believe you. This is Malevolent Maine. Guys, what was that? No, seriously. What was that? I can't explain it. But... What was it? All aboard, m Emmers. Today's story concerns Maine's deep history of the railroad. This one's a little gruesome. So prepare yourself. Maine has a rich history of trains. It may not seem like it nowadays, but back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, train tracks crisscrossed the state. The famous Boston and Maine brought thousands of people to the area from points south. A little less familiar is the Maine Central Railroad, which ran from Waterville to Portland along tracks known as the Low Road It slipped a bit in modern times, but at one point Waterville was Maine's 10th largest city, one of its most storied. Located along the western banks of the Kennebec River, Waterville is often called the Elm City for its stately old trees that even now stretch up to the sky. Colby College, one of the nation's oldest independent colleges, is located in Waterville and has been a point of pride since it first opened its doors in 1830. The other notable landmark is the Opera House. Completed in 1902, the Opera House serves as not only a theater for both local and traveling shows, but also as the city's offices. This was a common trend around the turn of the 20th century. A three-story brick building done in a colonial revival style has been an important tourist location for over 100 years. Waterville has never been a rival to Portland but it has drawn its fair share of visitors, especially in the early part of the 1900s. Our story comes from 1921 and deals with a train, the ambassador, full of passengers from Boston and Hartford, Connecticut, coming to Waterville to enjoy the Opera House and Colby College's football. It was new only a year old at that point and unlike anything the people of New England had ever known. It was state of the art. Purple cushioned seats, big glass windows, a dining car that served hot meals. Everything was bright, shiny, and new. The ambassador was the promise of the future for rail travel and the people of Maine had never seen anything like it. Unbeknownst to the passengers, One person on the train, Edward Clarence, had advanced leprosy. It's unclear how Clarence was able to board the train, but historians have come to suspect he wore some sort of disguise to hide the infection. He was described as a small man, slight of frame, with dark hair and eyes and a thin, wispy mustache. Edward Clarence was living in Boston or thereabouts but was originally from Albion, Maine, a small town just east of Waterville. Many have theorized that he was coming home to succumb to his disease. When Clarence's illness was discovered 30 miles south of Waterville, the conductor, one Thomas Granger, immediately made the decision to lock down the passenger cars. The train continued into the Waterville station Granger informed the operators of the infection. Doctors were summoned. No one was allowed on or off the train. Leprosy, or as it's now known, Hansen's disease, is much better understood by today's science. For instance, we know that it's actually quite difficult to contract. It takes months of close contact with an infected person breathing in the infected air. On top of that, scientists estimate about 95% of the population is naturally immune to this bacterial infection, which plays havoc with the nerves and skin of its victims. By the 1940s, a cure was discovered, and our current understanding of the disease came to light. In the 1920s, however, it was still a very terrifying mystery. People who contracted leprosy were exiled from society, sent to live in infected colonies where at least some semblance of normal life could be achieved. One such leprosarium, located on Penakee's Island in Buzzards Bay off the coast of Massachusetts, may have been the source of Edward Clarence's infection. By 1921, the governor of Massachusetts had decided that the leper colony on Penakee's Island had to go. Louisiana was opening a massive leprosarium, and he was determined to ship off the remaining 17 patients. However, according to the owner of the colony in Massachusetts, Dr. Frank Parker, one of those patients died on the ferry ride to the mainland where they were to be shipped by railroad south. The name of this individual was never released, but many now believe that it was Edward Clarence. Somehow, he had either escaped or convince the good doctor to let him return home. No one knows how Clarence managed to escape detection until just outside his destination, but his appearance there caused a massive panic. In the end, the entire train was quarantined. The goods carried in the boxcars, mostly food and, ironically, medical supplies, were unloaded, and those cars were unhooked from the train. Then the remaining passenger cars, with all the passengers and employees, were transported to a distant section of the rail yard. There, they were locked in, under guard from the Waterville police. The fear of the disease spreading kept everyone under lockdown. If leprosy were to infect the surrounding towns, it would be catastrophic. So despite the pleas of the passengers, they were kept under watch while the infection ran its course. Help me! Leprosy generally takes between one and five years to kill its victims, but the passengers on the Ambassador didn't have to wait that long. Edward Clarence, just miles from the farmhouse where he grew up, died on the second day of quarantine. Soon after that, the food and water supplies ran out. That's when things took a much darker turn. Robin Thatcher, professor of American history at Colby College in Waterville, and author of The Day the Train Stopped, A History of the End of the Line for Railroads in Maine, sat down and talked with us about the Ambassador incident.
1: When the food and water ran out, passengers went mad. Combine that with their fear of leprosy... ...and their inevitable end. Fear is a powerful tool, as we have seen throughout history. And the people on the Ambassador were no exception. Terror makes people do unimaginable things. And that's what happened on the train. Things got out of hand. Well, that's an understatement. The people started smashing the windows of the train. The police... These were Waterville police, remember... They were used to a few drunk college kids or the occasional car crash, not something like this. They didn't know what else to do. They started boarding up the windows.
0: It's important to restate that at this point, very few, if any of the passengers on the train were actually infected with leprosy. Very likely, there was no danger to the outlying community, but driven mad by fear, the passengers and crew had turned into the very nightmares the officials of Waterville had been imagining. Not knowing what else to do, only knowing they had to keep the population safe, the chief of police ordered his men to board up the windows of the train. While many of the passengers begged and pleaded, police officers placed heavy boards over the windows and nailed them into place. There were tears, not only from those on the train, but those on the outside as well. The reality of what they were doing lay heavy with the men, but they convinced themselves it was for the greater good. As the last board was nailed in place, and the final car was cast into darkness, a strange quiet fell over the train cars. For three hours, the train was as silent as the grave. What happened in there, we will never know. But after the third hour, the screaming started. The passengers had turned on each other. In her book, Thatcher describes how the passengers of the Ambassador, alone, terrified in the dark, began tearing each other apart using whatever they could find as weapons, including their own hands and teeth. A violent battle tore through the cars. These attacks raged for three days and nights. The policemen on duty had no choice but to listen to the horrible screams of the wounded and dying. There were women and children in those train cars they all knew. Many of the officers broke down and openly wept, rifles still drawn and aimed at the train. Two men had to be carried away when they started screaming and firing their weapons in the air, doing anything to drown out the noise of the massacre inside. One officer was reported as saying, This is what hell sounds like. I will hear this for the rest of my days. Finally, after two days, the cars grew quiet once again. The train cars remained locked up for two months. When the boards were finally pried off and the doors unlocked, what officials found was worse than anyone could imagine. We have to warn you that what you're about to hear is quite disturbing.
1: They had started to eat each other. In the end, with no food or water, they had turned to the one thing they had each other.
0: When officers looked into the windows, they saw bodies, or more accurately, body parts. A severed foot rested in the ray of light that lay just within the doorway. There was no shoe or sock, just a foot. Arms, legs, and heads were scattered about the cars. Everywhere the officers looked, they found broken bodies, blood stains, and cracked bones. It was impossible not to notice that many of the corpses had bite marks on them. The once pristine and modern ambassador had been turned into an abattoir. In the end, Every one of the 127 passengers and 12 crew members aboard the Ambassador died. Thomas Granger, the conductor, had remained in the engine's cab the entire time. It was determined that he was the last to die, protected from the chaos of the cars, alone, with nothing but the sounds of the madness to keep him company. After a year of further quarantine, the bodies were finally returned to the families. The ambassador was burned in a farmer's field not long after the bodies were removed. Soon after, the popularity of the rails declined to the point that many shut down for good. The horrible tragedy of the ambassador incident was soon swept under the rug and everyone did their best to move on from it. But this story isn't so easily forgotten. The corner of the train yard where the ambassador had come to rest was never used again. Many claimed it felt like someone was watching them, and that it felt colder there, like a crisp fall night, even in the full sun. For decades, workers at the rail yard claimed that they could hear screams coming from that distant stretch of the train yard, especially at dusk, right before the sunset. The rail yard is long gone and the railways are all torn up. But even now, visitors still hear screams of rage and pain. Reports of lunatic sounds come in at all times of the year, and residents have claimed to hear the whistle of a lone train calling out in the night. Perhaps the spirits of those who died on the ambassador's final ride linger close to the spot of the tragedy. One wonders what they must think of the tragedy that overtook them. The science of their time wasn't complete, but in the decades that followed we learned just how safe those passengers most likely were. Is it fear that keeps those restless dead close to the earth, or the blind rage that overtook them in the darkness? Perhaps it is the guilt of knowing they had been victims of humanity's greatest disease, fear. Stay safe out there, Maine. Malevolent Maine is Lucas Knight, Tom Wilson, and myself, Chris Estes. If you'd like to read more about our investigations, check out our website at malevolentmaine.blogspot.com While there, don't forget to check our merch store. And, if you're so inclined, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash malevolentmaine. Thank you for listening, and as always, stay safe out there, Maine.